We are, uh, we're glad you're here with us this morning. I'm going to be super honest with you, though. Um, I-, I was supposed to be somewhere else today, um, not to be all want-want-y, but um, Julie and I had planned for three years to uh, go to Europe for our 30th anniversary, so about right now, I'm supposed to be sitting down for dinner a- at my first night in Paris, so uh, I'm super glad to be here, all right? <laughs> Great to be here with you guys. Now, seriously, folks, uh, because of the coronavirus, have absolutely suffered, suffered physically from the illness and job loss, and so my vacation being postponed from my 30th to maybe my 35th, not that big a deal. But I am kind of bummed because I was looking forward to seeing stuff. I've never been to Europe, so I was going to see a lot of stuff I'd never seen before, Eiffel Tower, the Louvre. But I know this makes me a shallow person, I freely admit it. The thing probably I was looking forward to seeing more than anything else was the crosswalk in London outside of Abbey Road Studios. Uh, because I'm a, I'm a Beatles fan, and uh, Abbey Road, that or Revolver, depending on the day, my favorite uh, Beatles albums, and I guarantee you I was going to risk my life and risk my wife's life to get my picture walking across that crosswalk. Um, I, I really love the album. A lot of good songs on the album. Come Together's on that. A song called Something is on there. Here Comes the Sun is, is on Abbey Road. A weird song that I like called Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Raise your hand if you've heard Maxwell's Silver Hammer. Man, some youngsters in here know Maxwell's Silver Hammer. I'm a little afraid to ask why, but anyway, uh, that song is on there. And then, of course, the last full song in the album is a song called the end, and probably has the most iconic of the lines in, in all of the Beatles canon. It says, in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make. Peace out, you know? All the hippies like that stuff. But the reason I mention that is because that song, not its content really, but the, the structure and the rhythms of that song began to creep into my thinking as I began to think about the structure, not the content so much, but the structure of today's message, that rhythm of, of in the end, the love you take is, is equal to, began to kind of infect my thinking a little bit to kind of frame for us how we might think about this particular passage of Scripture. So let's find that passage of Scripture. If you would, please open your Bibles to 1 John chapter 4, 1 John chapter 4, find verse 11. This is the concluding argument or section of an argument that has taken up about 25% really of the entire book, little letter of 1 John. He's been talking about love and the importance of love as a defining characteristic of someone who is a follower of Jesus. And so this is kind of the crescendo that he has been building for, and he gives actually what I perceive to be some tests to see if that love is really there rooted in our lives. But before he does that, he makes uh, some statements that are important to set everything up. So we're just going to walk through this today. We're not going to read the whole passage at once. We're going to walk through it bit by bit today. And I want you to let your gaze fall on verse 11 because he makes a simple profoundly simple statement. Verse 11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. 
If God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, I shared with you last week, if you watched online or if you were here, that what John is talking about specifically is the love that one follower of Jesus, one individual follower of Jesus, ought to have for another follower of Jesus. He's talking about the love that should exist between Christians, both in the local church and then also in the church universal with other people who are followers of Jesus wherever we might encounter them. But it's also important to remember that verse 10 begins to set up the idea of how we become followers of Jesus in the first place. It's in verse 10 where he celebrates the idea that the reason that we are followers of Jesus is that we were once sinners against whom the wrath of God against sin was focused, but Christ was a propitiating sacrifice. And then we talked last week about how that word, which we never use in modern life, is a word which basically means to appease, that God Christ was an appeasing sacrifice, appeasing the wrath of God against us so that we might have the fullest experience of the love of God. And so so while he may specifically be talking about one individual Jesus follower's love for another individual Jesus follower, he is broadly, obviously not excluding the idea that Christians ought to be People who love everyone, whether they are in the faith or out of the faith, even if they are enemies of the faith. I mean, it doesn't make logical sense to us, does it, that that John would be telling us, Christian, you must love another Christian, but it's okay to hate everybody else. I mean, clearly he wouldn't be saying that. So there is a broader implication here that we should be people who are characterized by our love for other people. Simple, definitive statement. But then he follows that up with what, quite frankly, is a stunning observation. Look at verse 12. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Now, he starts off here in the nothing new category. He, he says something which all of us, quite frankly, if we have any experience with God's Word at all, should probably already know. He says no one has seen God. Now, God is spirit, and obviously we don't see spirit, but there's a broader understanding of that is that no one has seen God because to see God is a death sentence. We are unable to experience as mortal creatures the infinite holiness of God. His infinite holiness will overwhelm our mortality, and we will die instantly. But there There has been no shortage of people who have said to God, I'd like to, if you can, let me see you. Chief among them was Moses. Moses said, if I'm going to go further with these people, I need to to have a peek at you. God says, no one can see me and live, but I will let you see the after effects of, of, of my glory, whatever that was. I'll let you see the after effects of my glory after I have passed by. Job goes all the way through his book. We learned this this spring, saying, I want to see God. I want to argue my case before God. And he's not permitted to do that, but he is able to experience God in a physical way through the whirling tempest of a whirlwind in the desert. Isaiah, at a time when his nation was in an uproar at the death of a king that he loved, is in the temple seeking out God. God allows him to be able to see a glimpse 
of him, not the fullness of him, but a glimpse of him, remote and distant, high and lifted up. But he is close enough to understand that not even the angels can look upon the full glory of God. Now, there's a Bible word for these experiences. You don't see it in the Bible. Just Bible nerds use this word. And that word is theophany. Theophany. A theophany is a visible manifestation of God for the naked eye. Now, those visible manifestations usually are, 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 are seen in a vehicle, an, an earthly vehicle in some way. It, it could be whatever the glory was passing by, or it could be a whirlwind, or it could be the temple. God is not these things because these things cannot contain the fullness of who God is. But they allow the person looking on to catch a glimpse of God or a part of God. So John is not saying anything new here. He is simply saying no one has seen God. But then he has a mic drop moment. Let's look at verse 12 again. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us, and His love is perfected in us. Now, you're still saying, well, I don't see why that is so stunning. But it might be helpful if you remove the semicolon. I, I preach and read and do my study from the English Standard Version. If you remove the semicolon that is in the English Standard Version and replace it with the conjunction, but. And here's how it would read then, and this is the weight of it. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. Here's what John is saying. He's saying when we as people who are followers of Jesus, who claim to be inhabited by the love of God and reconciled to God through the sacrifice of Christ, when we as followers of Jesus love others in our world, it is a theophany. Our love becomes a visible manifestation of the love of God. Our love makes it perfect, allows people to be able to see it. Now, we are not God just as a burning bush or the after effects of God passing by are not God, and just like a whirlwind is not God, and just like a temple is not God. I'm not saying that we are God. I'm saying that John is pointing out that when we tangibly love others, that that love is a visible manifestation of the love of God. Our love becomes a theophany. You get that kind of opportunity when you're obedient to what God calls us to do, to love others. That's a ridiculous thought. And the and the clear implication of these verses is that if our lives aren't doing that, if our lives are not manifesting the, the love of God in our love for others, then it is a key indicator that we don't know God in the first place, that our failure to love is an indicator that we have not embraced the love of God. Now, to be fair, the only reason John says this is because he heard Jesus say it. Jesus said the same thing, that if we lack love for someone else, then 
There's no reason to indicate that we ourselves have experienced the love of Christ. And so, it's probably pretty important that we work through these tests that He gives us. It's not a a sideshow for our faith. You know, an advanced course for those who have been Christians for a long time. These are things we need to to really think about. And here's what he's going to lead us through. First one, the love we have is equal to the truths we hold. Love we have is equal to the truths that we hold. Look at verse 13. And by this, we know that we abide in him and he in us because he has given us his spirit. Now, on first reading, quick through, you may think, well, he's switched subjects now. He's ended his discussion about love, and he's moved from saying, we know that we're in God by uh, the love that we share with one another, and now he's saying that we know we are in God by, by having the Spirit of God inhabit us. But that's not what he's doing. I promise you he's not shifting subjects at all, and you'll see that in just a moment. But for right now, I just want you to hang on to the idea that he is saying that that part of the proof of being in God is being inhabited by a spirit, which raises the question, well, then how do we know that we are inhabited by the Spirit of God? Look at verse 14. And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he is in God. So the question is, how do I know that the Spirit of God is in me? And this goes along with things that he said over and over again in the book. He says, if you affirm that Jesus is from God, that his sacrifice has made you right with God, if you affirm that Jesus is the only hope for salvation, your ability to affirm that truth and to claim to have brought your life underneath that truth in itself is proof that you have the Spirit of God in you. You cannot claim those things to be true. You cannot affirm those things to be true if the Spirit at first hasn't given you that capacity. So what he's saying here, very simply, is how you can know that the Spirit is in you is if you hold fast to the truth of the gospel, if you hold fast to the truth of the saints, if you hold fast to the core teachings of Christianity. That's how you can know that the Spirit inhabits you. But then he says this, which lets us know he's never quit talking about love. Look at verse 16. So we have come to know and to believe the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Now, our English translations attempt somewhat imperfectly to reflect the idea that verse 16 is a continuation of the thought of a verse that began in verse 13. And, and how they do that is by they inserting the word and, sometimes it's the word so, some of our translations throw it all together and cover all their bases and have and so. 
But the idea, again, is that what happens in verse 16 is a continuation of what began in verse 13. And so with that being the case, remember he said, we know we're in God if we have the Spirit of God, and we know we have the Spirit of God if we can affirm, if we hold fast to the truth that Jesus is from God and saved us. And so when we get to verse 16, we can know, he's never quit talking about love, that we are in God because we, abiding in God, because the Spirit Spirit abides in us, we love others. In other words, the love we have is equal to the truths that we hold. We are able to love because we hold fast to the truth of Christianity. Now you say, well, Derek, are you saying that people who are not Christians cannot love sacrificially? Absolutely not. It's not what I'm saying. They, Non-Christians love other people sacrificially every day in self-giving, even martyr kinds of ways. Of course, of course you can love others sacrificially without the love of Christ, but you cannot love perfectly without the love of Christ because, remember, he's talking about being inhabited by the Spirit of God. When we affirm the truths of Christianity inhabited by the Spirit of God, it is not we who are doing the loving in the first place. It is the love of Christ flowing through us. Remember, we talked about our lives being a theophany, a visible manifestation of the love of God when we love. And the reason that that is is not because we are mimicking God's love. The reason that is is because God's love is actually literally flowing through our lives into the lives of other people. And so then, you cannot separate the act of love in in a Christian sense from holding fast to the truth of the gospel. You cannot have Christian love without holding fast to the truth of the gospel. The love we have is equal to the truths that we hold. And then next, the love we have is equal to the confidence we possess. The confidence we possess. Look at verse 17. Continuing his discussion of love, by this love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence for the day of judgment because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear for fear has to do with punishment and whoever fears has not been perfected in love. It's very easy again to say, well, maybe switch subjects here because he's He's gone from talking about love. Now he's talking about judgment. So so how does all this tie together? It ties together by understanding that he's never stopped talking about love. He's talking about our experience as followers of Jesus. If I've surrendered my life to Jesus as Savior, Scripture tells me I've been given what? A new life. Whose life have I been given? I have been given the life of of Christ. And so I am as he is in the world, verse 18. I am living out his life, his love in the world. But that raises a question. If I'm loving like Christ loved, if I'm loving in a sacrificial kind of way, a self-giving kind of way, can't that be taken advantage of? I mean, what, 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 what might happen to me if I'm not kind of a little jaded a little cautious, a little on my guard, keep my, keep my guard up. I mean, w- won't that 
Won't that just get me run over? Might that get me taken advantage of? John says, well, yeah, of course. And so you say, well, how does this benefit me? I have a friend in uh, western Kansas, pastors a large network of churches out in western Kansas named Andy Addis. He had something this past week on his Instagram uh, page, or whatever it's called, I'm 54, um, on his Instagram that I thought was uh, really insightful about this kind of thing. He says, if we truly understand that in salvation we have been given new life, then we are free to be obedient because we have a life to spare. We have a life to spare. So we are able to go marching into a world of rage and hate, loving like Jesus loved, because if this life ends, we got one in the bank. And we are going to live In that life forever, that life is more true of us than anything we are going to be experiencing here in this world. We have no idea what our future holds. We have no idea what the outcome of us living out the love of Christ, being vehicles for the love of Christ in this world might be, but it does not matter because we have been spared ultimate judgment because Christ took it on himself. We are loving as he is in the world, and in the end, it's all going to be okay. So, in the end, the love that we have is equal to the confidence we possess. And then this finally. In the end, the love we have is equal to the love we share, that we actually visit on the world. John, John chapter 4, verses 20 and 21, for sure the most uncompromising, stark words in this book, some of the most uncompromising, stark words in the Bible. Verse 20. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not love, he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment that we have from him, whoever loves God should try really hard. No. Whoever loves God must also love his brother. Cannot. Liar. Must. It's more than just a little intellectual exercise. We have to love others. Love other individual followers of Jesus. Love others. Absent love means that our profession of faith is a lie and we're fooling ourselves. Several years ago, gosh, it's been, it's been 10 years ago, I had a member of our church come to me and he said what a lot of people have said to me over time, uh, 
you know, this Christian thing is just not working out for me. I mean, I get that there's supposed to be more than what I've got, and I just don't have much right now. And he began to kind of quickly tell me that his relationships were jacked up, and when he read the Bible, nothing happened, and it was just a bunch of junk, just a bunch of junk going on. And so I said, well, let's meet. Let's just, let's just meet. And I said, I'll make a commitment to you. I'll meet with you every week. I'll just meet with you every week. I do that occasionally. I don't do that for everybody. I couldn't. But I had an opening. I said, sure, I'll meet with you every week. And we did for years. And then we met monthly for several years after that. And I said, come in, tell me what's going on. So he came in, he told me, tell me what was going on. He talked about me, all, all his relationships were jacked up, and he wasn't feeling anything when he read the Bible, and you know, just the whole nine yards, just the whole nine yards. And uh, I said, well, just kind of, just unpack your life for me. Why don't you just start telling me about your life? And you know where he started? <laughs> he started, he, he did a rage puke about politics for about 30 minutes in my office. Just, blah, just, just mad, angry, you know, and all of that anger, all of that anger landed on our president at the time, Barack Obama. So he talked, seriously, it's weird, 30 minutes, 30 minutes. Then he began to go on, and then, you know, relationships jacked up, more detail, just feel like I'm going through the motions at church, blah, 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 blah. So I'm here you're my discipler, you're my coach, help me. I said, okay, here's my first assignment. Every single day when you get up, I want you to pray for God's favor and blessing on Barack Obama. And he said to me, wait a minute, I, I didn't come in here for that. I came in here so I know how to love Jesus better. I said, I know, I know, but right now, you have, you have set aside the rules of Christian living to give you permission to hate another human being. And if you can't learn to love here, you're not going to wind up being able to get past go in your walk with Jesus. Well, I don't want to do that. Then don't meet with me anymore. But that's where I'm telling you you need to start. Okay. And he did. Came back the next week. I did what you told me. Didn't like it. I, I just, you just keep doing it. You just keep doing it. And he did. And do you know what happened? His heart began to soften. Towards the president at the time. But then his relationships began to work better. And he began to hear Jesus when he read his Bible. And he began to have real encounters with God when he prayed. And he wasn't going through the motions anymore. Now, his political convictions didn't change. And frankly, I agreed with this man's political convictions. But he had given himself permission to hate somebody. And the love you have from God is equal to the love you share from God into the lives of others. Whether you think they're deserving of it or not. Who have you given yourself permission to hate? Somebody that hurts you? Another politician? Another, another 
segment of society? Who have you given yourself permission to hate? Let me just go back and review real quick and see if anyone says, I love God, hates his brother, liar. For he who does not love his brother cannot love God. And this commandment we have for them, whoever loves it, must also love his brother. I believe, I've said this, I believe that God has for several years now been judging the church in America. We're always talking about God's judging America. I mean, I obviously a big fan of America. But I'm a citizen of a kingdom that won't end. My primary concern is the church. I believe God is judging the church in America. And I think one of the primary ways that he is filtering out who belongs to him and who doesn't is by the love that we choose to show others. Because if we are not manifesting the love of God, being vehicles through which his love can be seen in the world, then all we are is the indistinct rage machine that we see in the world in which we live. The world needs the truth of the gospel. They'll never hear it if there's nothing distinct about what we're saying. We must love. He gives us tests. He says the love we have is equal to the truths we hold, equal to the confidence we possess, equal to the love we share. And if that is not showing up in our lives, if we look at our lives as followers of Jesus, and by any honest assessment, the words that come out of our mouth are more filled with anger and critique and rage, then at the very least, we are in sorry, sorry shape as followers of Jesus. But it is perhaps even more likely if our lives are characterized by the rage noise in our world that we never knew him in the first place. Because in the end, those captured by the love of God love with his love. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.